Welcome to First Mile's Climate Heroes. I'm your host, Bruce Bratley, founder of recycling company First Mile. On this show, we meet and learn from the climate heroes who are building solutions right now to tackle climate change. UN predictions say we need to produce somewhere between 50 and 100% more meat by the year 2050. But current food production already makes up 26% of global CO2 emissions and 70% of freshwater consumption. One way to produce more meat is to intensify animal production, but this is cruel, carbon intensive and generates more waste, which can often contain harmful ammonia, methane, sulfur cyanide, nitrates. To address the desire for more meat, a new agrarian revolution is emerging with the production of clean foods which are produced away from the farm. And my guest today, Andy Shovel, is founder and co-CEO of This, which produces a range of food that allows you to virtually eat meat without farming or killing a single animal. Andy, welcome to First Mile's Climate Heroes. Hi there, thanks for having me. Great to have you on the show. So, um... I want to uh, learn a little bit more about you and uh, how you got to do uh, this. Uh, And after my rather grandiose introduction, um, which I wrote, I then went and have a look at your LinkedIn profile. And you did a much better job of introducing yourself on there, which was a plant-based sausage salesman. So uh, I should have just stuck with that. (laughs) Yeah, Um, very very kind uh, introduction. Thank you. Um, So, yeah, I... uh, head up with my friend Pete, who's the other co-CEO and co-founder uh, This, and we make a wide range of uh, meat alternative products, which are plant-based, and uh, as you noted in your intro, they give you the upsides of having meat without necessarily the downsides. And how did you get to do that? Because I saw your bio, it's quite interesting. You founded three, no, four businesses you founded, including This, on your LinkedIn profile which was only interrupted by three months at McDonald's, which you described as flipping burgers and cleaning loos. Yeah, probably in reverse order in terms of uh, (laughs) the amount of doing each task. Um, But yeah, so um, I have been a founder of uh, various companies since I was 21. Uh, I'm now 36. So yeah, oh God, how many is that? 15, 15, 16 years. So been a long time. And I started off uh, appropriately clueless for a 21-year-old and uh, tried to start whatever business I could back then with, with just not much money because I didn't have much money at the time. So uh, I had a laptop and a phone. And if you have those things, then an agency business is generally where you will land in terms of what you can start. And so I started a recruitment agency, not knowing anything about recruitment. I took out uh, a couple of Gumtree ads to get uh, candidates in. And then I simultaneously was cold calling companies to um, to try and get my first clients. And I came up with a, a sort of semi-innovative model at the time, which was try before you hire. So I would facilitate internships for companies for free. And then if the, they wanted to keep the person after three months, then I would then charge them. But they'd have a chance to kind of interview over three months at that point. Pay, paid internships, I should add. So um, that, that was the model. And the company did relatively well for a sort of child founder. And, uh, and you know, sold it uh, about two years later for not that much money. But at the time, uh, it felt great and, and exciting and, and like a real sort of milestone in, in my career. So I did that. And then I was a bit lost for a few months. Uh, and then my godfather, at the, <laughs> he's still my godfather, I was about to say at the time, 
he, t- he took me to a startup restaurant quick service place that he had just invested in as a business angel. And it, it, it was called Coco de Mama. And Coco de Mama, um, many listeners might know, still exists as a chain in the London area and I think national now. Uh, but I went to the first store when it opened uh, and the founder was one of the founders was there and he was having such fun running around cooking all this food and shouting and it just looked really dynamic and like something I wanted to be involved in. I knew nothing about restaurants. So I committed at that time, that lunch, uh, to, to going into the restaurant business and thought it'd be a fun career. And it is quite rock and roll actually, as it turns out. Um, but, but for a young man, probably, or a young person, not necessarily for myself now. So, so I came again, came up with an angle because obviously I, I always want to try and be as innovative as possible in, in whichever space I'm, I'm, you know, trying to operate in. So the angle at the time was, was that you couldn't really get good burgers delivered. Uh, at uh, your home. Uh, there was a company called Deliverance, which is now defunct, and there was nothing else. There was no delivery back then in sort of 2011 or something. So I um, set up Chosen Bun, which is uh, now a small chain of um, burger delivery restaurants. And we, we really configured everything for delivery, like the packaging we patented and, and worked on endlessly. My co-founder, Pete's an engineer by, by education, so that was helpful. And we used to throw the burger and its packaging to one another across the street. And if it was intact with all the lettuce in the right place uh, on the other side of the street, then we knew we'd nailed it. And eventually we did. So, so we did that. And that became uh, a sort of local success when we opened the first site in Fulham. And then in 2016, we sold that to a large fast food operator um, and then went on to the next thing. And we then had this big U-turn, right? Because we sold meat for a living pretty much in the burger restaurant. And, and then we we decided we wanted to try and get into more sustainable food. And your question was sort of, I guess, how did you get into it? But also maybe a bit of why and or maybe that's to come, I guess. But but at the time, there wasn't really a very strong like why I wasn't particularly mission driven, I would say. And I've had this huge journey personally from being relatively agnostic about food and sustainable food and ethical food to now being like immensely driven by the mission. And out of environment and animal welfare, I personally am more driven by animal welfare because of the scale of suffering that the food industry presents. And what was the switch point there? Because you're selling burgers. Did you go and see where the burgers were, the meat burgers, where they were being made, manufactured? Were you getting involved in the supply chain? Or was it from just sort of reading and learning around it? So what was the sort of the the, the light bulb moment, the switch? When did that happen? Yeah, like at Chosen Barn, you know, we we didn't dive into the supply chain as far as we could have. I mean, we went to we went to the butchers and to their uh, processing plants, but we didn't go further back in the supply chain. We didn't go to farms. We didn't go to slaughterhouses. I mean, nobody is invited to slaughterhouses, by the way. <laughs> and there's a very good reason for that. To get to a slaughterhouse, you've either got to work there or work for DEFRA, right? Like, it's very hard to, to you know, so there are all sorts of well-kept secrets about how these uh, industries operate. But the light bulb moment was, I mean, this is what sort of any sanctimonious person says about it. So I feel slightly self-aware about, about being lectury about it. But but the, the, the light bulb moment for me was somebody showed me, it was an XXX girlfriend, or maybe four X's away. And th- this lady showed me a video of little fluffy chicks on a conveyor belt. They were cheaping as chicks do for their mum. And on this conveyor belt, I didn't really know what to expect. And then, and then a few seconds later, these chicks were ground up by these spinning steel wheels that were macerated uh, alive. 
And I was absolutely shocked by this. Um, it seemed like some sort of um, extreme internet content, you know, like the sort of stuff that's on the dark web or something. And I was like, what the hell is this? And I was then told that that is absolutely common practice in the egg industry because male chicks don't lay eggs and they can't be used for meat because they're the wrong body type. So they're considered as waste. And so they are either macerated in that fashion or they are put in gas chambers and suffocated. And honestly, it was, it was that moment where I was like, okay, I want absolutely no part of that. I'm not buying eggs because I'll be paying for this machine or, or this machine's upkeep. So I was like, no, not doing that. Absolutely not. I'm not a chick macerator. I'm not going to pay someone else to do it for me and I'm not going to do it. So that was it. And then I started finding out for the sake of sort of consistency, I guess, I started opening myself up to how the rest of my food and drink was produced. And it turns out that the, um, the cruelty is... is uh, absolutely comprehensive through the animal food system so that that was my light bulb moment really and it was quite instant i pretty much gave it all up well first vegetarian for a time and then i went fully plant-based so um so yeah that that was it really and do you think we're making progress on the cruelty because on the one hand people are much more aware or becoming more aware of, of food production where it comes from but on the flip side uh we've just got these huge feedlots and and sort of very industrial farming techniques and do you think on balance it's getting worse or do you think it's getting better you know what's so depressing is it's getting worse it's desperately sad but um the the uh if you take the dairy industry um about 25% of dairy cows in the UK uh, have never and will never see grass right which is a natural god-given instinct that those those animals have they, they they're on concrete from when they're born to when they, they die it's called zero grazing uh and it's it's something that we've taken from the us in the name of efficiency and that zero to 25 percent of dairy cows doing that has jumped up in no time it's taken about i think five years or something and so that will keep going up i'm sure and that is actually pretty cruel right to take an animal that that's it, it's it's literally like saying humans may never like sit down or something it's such a fundamental for a cow to graze is, is almost like a human to, to walk or breathe i mean it's so fundamental so things are getting worse because the industry is constantly looking at ways to become more efficient and there is a direct kind of scales if you like like a seesaw and as efficiency goes up cruelty or welfare rather goes down and it's there's no such thing as efficiency going up and then welfare also going up and is there is there a way of eating meat in an uncruel way for people out there who want to eat meat if you get roadkill or something if you i mean i don't mean to be facetious like like that is the only i sometimes hear the phrase ethical meat and there's just no such thing. I, th I think if you if you are determining when uh, an animal dies for your pleasure or profit, then I think that falls under the umbrella of cruelty, which which is not really in my interpretation. I think if you were to look up the word cruelty, it, it probably would fall under that. If you're taking the life of an animal, you know, you just you just take away its agency, right? Like because it's less intelligent and less able to fight you off, you're, you're robbing it of its agency, which I think is, is not a good thing. First Mile is the UK's leading waste management service. We help over 30,000 businesses reduce their carbon impact with our award-winning range of recycling solutions. Go to our website, which is thefirstmile.co.uk to get started today. If you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday.
And so you've got a solution. This, this is the hard part of the podcast because I'd like you to describe to the listeners uh, a, a real product. So it's a bit harder to harder to do without visual images. And your your website's brilliant images of delicious looking uh, meat substitutes. Is that what you call them? I don't know products. So what do you sell? So we sell, uh, we call them meat alternatives, but meat substitutes is fine. I will point out, by the way, before I dive into that, that it is an answer. But sometimes I get people, normally people trolling my LinkedIn, who think that that I think meat alternatives are the only answer. And they're definitely not because they have got their shortcomings as well as lots of reasons why they're great. Uh, I think that, that they're part of the answer. Um, and a whole food plant-based diet is obviously, you know, another part of the answer as well. Uh, and then other other components to, to the answer as well, which, which we can go into um, later, future stuff. But what we sell. So um, we have a broad offering of meat alternatives and the portfolio of products we, we make is designed to be quite kind of full service in the sense that pretty much every mainstream meat product you can think of, we now sell. So we've got burgers, we've got sausages, we've got plant-based chicken pieces, we've got three types of plant-based bacon, we've got salads in W. Smith & Boots, we've got uh, sandwiches, we've got wraps. So we've, we've got a bunch of products which, you know, cater to pretty much every type of occasion you could think of. And those products are at the leading edge, globally, I would say, as pompous as that sounds, they're at the leading edge in terms of the realism that they have to meet. Because we think that if you are somebody that enjoys the taste of meat, then you don't necessarily want to compromise with an unrealistic meat alternative, which tastes kind of vaguely reminiscent, vaguely of meat and actually is a bit of Frankenstein type food. We'd rather you had all of the benefits taste wise and texture and mouthfeel and succulents that you get from meat but just without the carbon footprint and the emissions and and the cruelty to animals, basically. Without giving all your secrets away, I mean, how is it made? I mean, it looks, because it just looks, I mean, the chicken in particular just looks like chicken and it's got the gra- gra- granular structure of chicken. I mean, is it, is it, can you tell us without any secrets? So, so how we make it varies product to product. Fundamentally speaking, we've got a team of uh, about 20 uh, food scientists and some of those are PhDs uh, and they're phenomenally dynamic and creative and bright uh, as, as technical people and we do everything from the ground up so we're not a lot of the plant-based brands you've seen that they, they will go to a factory that makes plant-based products and say hey can you give us a sausage with a slightly different flavor we don't do that we sort of design all of our recipes we've got 10 patents filed now to protect all the different innovations we've created in these in these products and as for how we make them we generally take you know, the plant-based inputs, which, which will be, you know, peas or soybeans, protein, uh, protein-heavy legumes normally. And then we will take away the stuff we don't need. So like the, the husk on the outside, the, the sort of like bumpy, fibery stuff in the middle. And then we isolate the protein. Uh, and, you know, same thing you get in, in protein shakes or protein bars. We'll do the same sort of process there. And then we will try and develop the flavor uh, once we've got the protein uh, and the flavor will be benchmarking constantly against the meat products. So when you take, for instance, a pork sausage and you give it a big whiff, it doesn't smell like pork. It actually smells like about 16 different things. You know, it might smell a bit, bit leather shoe, a bit, bit of cheese, a bit, bit kind of caramelly. It's got all these different things. And once you start diving in, you start to notice them. And then we find all those things in the natural 
uh, a world. So it might be onion powder that smells a bit similar to one of those 16 things in pork and, you know, might be corn flavor, whatever. And then we put, put them all together to make a flavor. And then on the texture side, we generally use heat and pressure. So a bit like how you make pasta, actually. We use the same machine a lot of the time as, as, as how you would make pasta. It's, it's an extrusion machine. So in other words, you put the inputs in, you hydrate them with water, and then you shove them into a pipe, essentially. It's literally exactly how you make dried pasta or, or fresh pasta. Once you do that with our inputs and then you put the flavor in, you can shape it. So you just cut it in certain ways. Uh, and, and, you know, that's essentially uh, how we make a lot of our products. The CO2, the carbon, the carbon equivalent impact of your products is, is, is very impressive. I mean, it's half of chicken, a third of pork and a whopping tenth. So only 10% of beef. How is that achieved? So this one's a really easy answer. If you just imagine for a second what cows and chickens that are being reared by farmers, what they eat, they often eat soy protein, pea protein. Uh, and then once they've eaten it, they grow, they move around, they fart, they you know, all the things that animals do, which essentially is waste, right? So you've got protein in and then you've got this waste. We cut all of those different areas of sort of wastage and we take the protein that they might have been given and we turn it into uh, uh, food which humans can eat directly. So we kind of cut the middleman out. We don't need to grow an animal with our plant protein. We literally just turn the plant protein into food we sell. So that's why it's so much less uh, damaging for the environment than uh, animal protein because animals don't make protein. Animals are fed perfectly good protein from plants that we could eat, uh, but that they use it up on, on metabolizing and growing and running around until they're killed. So animals are an incredibly inefficient way to deliver humans protein uh, because depending on species, you tend to get a ratio of about 100 in one out. So you, you put 100 units of protein in, you get one unit out with an animal because of all the reasons I just mentioned. Uh, whereas obviously, you know, with our process, it's pretty much one-to-one. -one. And do you think, because um, there was sort of probably in sort of coming out of COVID or in COVID, there was sort of a quite a big push with lots of the supermarket chains sort of opening a vegan uh, alternative sort of section and a lot of people talking about veganism maybe it's still growing but it's dropped out of the press is it still are, are the number of vegans in the uk still growing are the people trying plant-based products and plant-based alternatives still growing or is it starting to slow a little it's starting to slow a little and what's happened is what tends to happen in uh, same as what tends to happen in in other like high growth categories uh, same thing happened in craft beer and smoothies and coconut water you get this kind of over proliferation and hype phase where too many brands dive into the space and in our case especially in this category the breadth of quality was quite big so you had a lot of products that were quite poor that big brands normally would just like go to a factory and say give us a nugget and there'll be rubbish and they'd sell it. And it's put a lot of people off the category. Um, so what's happening now is we're in that kind of consolidation phase and you get that, you, you, you used to get that in these other categories I mentioned, like craft beer and smoothies and stuff. And the supermarkets are generally speaking going from say 15 brands of plant-based food down to like five. So on a high, on a high level, the categories 
pretty flat at the moment, maybe a couple of percent in decline, depending on which quarter or whatever you look at. But on the plus side, the quality for the consumer is massively going up because the supermarkets are cutting that tail of products that wasn't really performing and that, the, that didn't also deliver on a quality um, level. And unfortunately, our brand is, is one of the brands which are being backed by the supermarkets to remain. Um, so, so even though the category story is, 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 is for the last kind of nine months, 12 months, not that compelling, our business is 55% up year on year, partly because of this consolidation. And what do you say to the meat industry when they say you're not going to get enough protein from uh, meat alternatives or a vegan diet? I think it's just misinformation. You know, it, it definitely is misinformation. I mean, I mean, you well, our, our products are higher in protein or the same as meat for, for a start. You know, achieving as much protein as one needs through a plant-based diet is not too much of a challenge. Um, you know, if, if you're eating any seeds, legumes, lentils, edamame beans, nuts. These things are all very high in protein, uh, and then you've got then you've got also um, protein heavy foods like our foods or protein bars or protein shakes. Um, it's just not difficult to be honest. And not only is it theoretically not difficult, but there are so many millions of people doing it that it's just obvious. So, in, in sort of stepping back a little bit, what do you think is going to be the sort of tipping point away from industrial farming and the waste and the carbon impact and the cruelty? Is it going to be something, a new technology comes along, which is what Jim Mellon thinks is going to happen and there's just going to be this paradigm shift and we won't have farming anymore? Do you think it's going to be um, some sort of social impact where people eventually say, actually, we can't continue like this or meat becomes so expensive, we can't eat it? Or do you think it's going to be a health scare if more and more people become resistant to antibiotics because two-thirds of antibiotics are consumed by or used by the the meat industry. What's the thing that's going to get to the tipping point, do you think? I think the uh, uh, electric car world is a really good proxy to answer this question. So that has been a combination of, I guess, social awareness and product development and and ultimately superiority, if if not parity at least. So... Tesla has made cars which are just as good as petrol cars, if not better. At the same time, people feel like they're doing something good by um, purchasing and driving one. And I think that that matrix of factors of like product development and and parity and also uh, social awareness will be the two contributors to us hopefully moving away from such a cruel and intensive animal farming regime. And I think Tesla and other other electric car brands have have sort of shown that you can go in quite a short space of time, you can go from being a sort of crackpot startup that everybody's sneering at to the most valuable company in the world, more or less. So, so um, yeah, I think I think for me that's where I look to, you know, I get hope and and from that. So we like to talk on the podcast about mistakes that we've made, and I noticed that you had two thousand iterations to get to your eight launch products. What was the sort of craziest Frankenstein product that came out of those two thousand iterations <laughs> that you couldn't sell? God, I mean, you don't want to try version one of probably anything great because if it's great, it's probably taken a lot of learning. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anything I've been given has horrified me. Um, I've I've been horrified by um, vegan products on the market before. We, we we tried. I shouldn't really name and shame actually, but we tried some products from a sort of legacy brand, 
And we kept them. We, first, we thought we we're going to throw these away. And then we kept them, me, Pete and I, because we wanted to give them to mates as a kind of like prank, just because just it was so horrible. So I have tried some pretty bad stuff. Um, just trying to think back to our products. No, I, I, don't, I don't think I've tried anything from, from ours that, that is truly life-changingly bad. I mean, you've got version, version one of anything we make is, is never ready for the consumer, put it that way. But <laughs> On this show, we're building a hall of fame for climate heroes, and we always ask our wonderful guests to leave something in First Mile's Climate Heroes Hall of Fame. So, what or who would it be? I am going to put the Toyota Prius in the Hall of Fame um, because the Toyota Prius was the first very popular sort of like sustainability-focused vehicle, uh, and I think it will be the first of not just many, but probably all. I think eventually every vehicle will be sustainability focused. And the Prius was our gateway drug as a global society. Um, it's not very pretty and it's not, uh, it's not very fast, but it, it, it um, was a huge success. It still is. And it paved the way for, I think, everything else that's happened in the car industry. And so given it's such a big polluting industry, I think it's a very important climate hero. Perfect. Thank you. And if you could recommend a book, a Netflix TV program, film, the best thing that was written on climate change, animal cruelty, being a vegan, activating for change, what would it be? I would probably encourage people to put their brave pants on and watch Dominion, which is on Netflix, I believe. Uh, it's a documentary about what goes on behind the scenes in uh, animal farming and how our food is produced. Uh, and I say get one's brave pants on because it's not very fun watching it uh, and it's quite unpleasant. But I think it's important that all of us understand uh, where our food comes from. And when we pay our £3.50 for a pack of uh, food, we are sponsoring that producer and we are, we are saying, I am cool with what you're doing. Uh, and so um, I believe that, uh, that one should watch that. Love it. And so looking to the future, what's coming up that you're most excited about that you can share with us? We are looking at getting into quite a different area of meat free, actually. It's been a sort of pet project of mine, which I've been selling into the team. And now the team's really excited about it, which I'm in turn uh, excited about. It's basically like we want to get into clean label, pretty much unprocessed, whole food based alternatives to meat. So we'll be answering those questions from critics about nutrition and health when it comes to meat alternatives and it'll it'll hopefully hopefully complement our existing range of hyper realistic products and i'm very very excited about that because i think that you know if you look at the list of things that the industry is doing really well and you look at things that we're not doing well yet health and nutrition probably sits in this bucket you know it doesn't it doesn't mean to say that our products don't have a really valuable role, which they, they definitely do. But, you know, are they, are, are they a health food which is going to functionally improve your health? Not necessarily. They're not going to make your health worse, but they're also not, not like a, you know. So, so I'm excited about that. I think that's a, an interesting area. We've also got some meat alternative products to replace other meat products that we haven't yet replaced. So that's super cool. One of them is in, around the sort of like roast occasion because 
I don't know if you've noticed this as a vegetarian, but if you want to have a roast either at home or out, your options are generally really limited. You're going to have like a slightly, slightly soul crushing nut roast, or you're just going to have the trimmings like potatoes and veg and not much else. So, so, um, we're, we're doing something in the roast occasion, which uh, I think will be fantastic and, and fulfill a need for sure. Um, and then finally, I guess we're uh, internationalizing the business. So as of Monday next week, we're going to be live in 400 supermarkets in Holland, uh, in Albert Heijn stores. And it's our first um, sort of foray into an international market. So that's pretty exciting. Brilliant. Congratulations. That sounds amazing. What's the sort of, um, for you and Pete, the roadmap, what does success look like in, I don't know, two, three, five, ten years time? Ooh, I think um, firstly, making sure that we cover off every single need state so that we make it really easy for the mass population to go meat free. We're getting there, but I see this kind of clean label, unprocessed side of the business as being particularly exciting. And I think we can take it in all sorts of directions as well, whether it's snacking or center of plate protein or all kinds of stuff. That's, I think, one area that, that's very exciting. I also think that success looks like geographical expansion so that so that we get people all around the world to explore these meat-free options. And therefore, we have a benefit for the climate. We have a benefit for animals because we're quite a UK-centric brand. I've just mentioned we're internationalizing, but I think having that footprint much wider would be pretty exciting. Brilliant. Andy, it's been absolutely uh, superb having you on first month's climate heroes thanks very much for coming on the show and it's been incredible learning about this if listeners and i'm sure they will want to find you what's the website uh, this.co perfect great to have you on the show thanks andy thank you so much i'm bruce brightly and you've been listening to first miles climate heroes where we meet incredible people making an impact to tackle climate change If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and subscribe to the show. We have brand new episodes every Wednesday.